You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Jonathan Brooks, who preached a couple weeks ago, uh, guest preacher, friend of mine from Texas, said that uh, it's clear uh, that we're living up to our name, Gospel Community, the Community Peace Church, because of how long your guys' greeting times are. So, so yeah, I'm thankful that our people like to spend time with one another. Also, it's good to be back with you guys, and, and it's good to be here this morning. I haven't preached in the pulpit since the end of May, and so the church allotted me some time off to spend some time praying through vision and prayer, and I'll give an update at a later date on how that went. But I'm thankful for you guys providing that time and space for me. But I'm also really excited to be back here this morning. If there was a way that I could describe that time away and what I feel for clarity moving forward, it's this, to be faithful, continuing to do what we're doing and what we've been doing since the outset. Preach and teach the word of God, preach and teach the gospel, and remain faithful to live that out. So that's the quick summary of it. So if you're wondering what that time was like and kind of the direction for our church. So with that, we're in the gospel of Matthew, and we're actually concluding this sermon series titled, Live. And we've titled it Live because we understand this, that ultimately Christ came that we can not just have life, but have it abundantly. And we're not left to our own understanding on how to live life abundantly. We're not left to figure out how humans are supposed to live and flourish inside of this world. The creator himself stepped inside of the world and actually delivered this sermon telling us not only how we live, but how we can live and flourish abundantly. And so let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 as we start to conclude this series. Just to give you guys a heads up of where we're headed, we will do a one-off sermon next week, and then after that, we are going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount Live series. Then we're going to be in 2 Timothy. So if you guys could start preparing, reading ahead, I would encourage you to read through 2 Timothy just as many times as you can between now and the time that we start, just to give you guys a clear understanding of where we're headed. So Matthew 7, we're going to pick up where Brad left off last week with verse 13, and we're going to run through 23 today. So Matthew 7, 13 through 23. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and space that's been provided. We thank you for what's true. You're true. Your word is true. And God, we praise you that you're a good God. And you have not been silent. You have spoken, and you've spoken to us through your word. And we thank you that this morning you want to speak to us, and so we pray that you would. Speak clearly, soften our hearts, open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes. God, where we're hardened, where we're jaded, where we're distraught because of the sins of last night and this week, minister the truths of your word to us. Where our hearts are bitter, resentful, and angry, soften them, heal them, and mend them through your love and through the gospel. Father, thank you for this time. We pray for those that are hurting in our church. We pray for those that are going through big changes in our church. We pray for our church family as a whole. We pray for the Carters. We know as they're getting ready to venture off on their move, we pray that you would open up uh, living space for them. We pray that you would uh, uh, help lead them to a church family. Father, we pray for the churches here in Eugene that the gospel is proclaimed loudly, boldly, and humbly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I grew up, my favorite subject in school was P.E. I excelled at P.E., And I always knew what kind of day it was going to be in PE based upon this. When I walked in the door of the gym, I could scan the room and see what was laid out. I knew if there were basketballs, it was going to be a good day at PE. I knew if there were dodgeballs, 
not the Nerf ball kind today, but the real ones, like the kickball ones, I knew it was going to be a good day. It was time to separate the strong from the weak. <laughs> I also recognized this, when it was going to be a bad day. Whenever I walked in the gym and the parachute was spread out on the gym floor, you guys know, you guys know, this is, this is more therapeutic for me right now than anything else to get to rehashes. I, I knew when, when I saw the parachute, I'm like, this, this, this day is going to suck because no one wins at the parachute game. No one wins. I also recognized I grew up in Texas. Every now and then we would have line dancing. If I had got the memo at a time, I guarantee you I would have called in sick for those days. But during PE, we had a line dance last. The day I hated the most was when you had to do your testing for flexibility and mobility, and you saw the box sitting out. I was born stiff. I don't need a box to tell me I can't touch the box. So I remember walking in, I'm like, ugh, like I hate these days. I don't like this day at PE. I say all that to say this. I could walk in, objectively observe, see what was laid out before me to kind of know what day I was getting myself into. As I read our passage today, I think you guys can objectively see kind of what we're getting into today you're going to get a feeling for the water of where we're headed. So read with me if you would. Matthew 7, 13. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good, free, good, bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We can see the passage that we're covering today is, is, is hinging on this, eternity, heaven and hell. We can see that the passage today is heavy because of that. But he says that narrow or broad is the path that's going to lead to destruction. We oftentimes don't like to think through eternity because eternity is massive and we can't get our finite minds wrapped around it, but we definitely don't like to think about eternity when it comes to hell. But the very words Jesus is laying out, bold statement here, and, and, and what he's delivering to us today, have the ability to save and spare lives from eternal damnation, destruction, or to be with him forever. So been gone for six weeks Welcome back, guys. Good to be with you guys. This is the passage we're jumping back into. It's weighty stuff because eternity is. You think about the passages that even describe it, eternity and hell, and what we're given is that it's a conscious reality. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We look at the story of Lazarus, who was a poor beggar and the rich man, and we see the rich man when he's in this place of abyss, this place that is, I think, a description of what hell is like, given to us in a parable by Jesus, nonetheless, what we see and recognize, it's a place where you consciously grow into your own self-centeredness for all of eternity, separated from any of the goodness of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, look, the reality is, is that some people are taking this broad path and some people are taking this very narrow path. 
So our main point today is going to be this, also not popular, that you're either a poser or you're a possessor. You're either a poser of Christianity or you're someone who truly possesses a Christian faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's two options. And I know today that if you're investigating or you're here just checking out, you're like, where does this put me in if I'm not a Christian? Specifically today, we're talking to the people that profess Christ, proclaim Christianity, but actually aren't truly in Christ. So it is an opportunity for you to listen in and see and even understand what Christianity is, what the message is that we proclaim. And so we'll break it down like this, that we're either posers or possessors, and we're going to look at what it is to be a true possessor of Christianity. And that's going to be a true profession that comes with a true practitioner, that comes with true perseverance over the course of a lifetime. Got it? Those three things. To be a true possessor, it means you're going to have a true profession of the faith. You're going to be a true practitioner of that message, and you're going to persevere over the course of your life. We understand that because we can look right here. Look at what Jesus says to pick up where Brad left off last time. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What is the narrow gate, and what is the broad here, here it is. The narrow gate is Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone and your faith in it. That's it. Like picture yourself walking through a metal detector. You can't walk through a metal detector with anything, any piece of metal, but also just anything in your pockets. It's a common joke in our family that when I go through a metal detector, my wife thinks I look guilty or suspicious, but I'm probably getting stopped. But you can't go through that metal detector with luggage and with anything else. You, you, you have to pass through it almost bare what it is to enter the kingdom of God, what it is to have a saving faith, what it, is to be def- or what it is to simply define the narrow way is this. It's not anything you can do. It's not anything you can bring. It's not any bit, any ounce, any drip of your own righteousness. Anything that you can attach yourself to and say, look at this or look at this. It is Christ, his righteousness alone, the fact that he's robed you and clothed you in that righteousness, and that's it. That's all you can bring. But that way is really, really difficult because everything in our world and everyone in our world wants to lay claim to something we've done. And we learned this from early on. Grades in schools. If you work hard, you'll get good grades. If you work hard after school, you can get into a good college. If you work hard in college, you can get a good career. If you do good at your career, you can get a good promotion. So it's no wonder that we start to think that everything that we do in life has an outcome of something that we get. And we get to the gospel and go, that's not how it works. Everything you do in life, you can expect or you might expect to receive something. With the gospel, we receive everything, and that impacts what we do. And so that's where where we start. I've used this analogy before. I'm going to use it again just to help you understand how how countercultural the gospel is. But a lot of people view the gospel even in terms like this, like, God, I did something for you. I gave this, I paid this, almost like a vending machine, but we'll say fast food. I've gone through the line, I told you what I wanted, I paid some good deeds, now give me my food. That's not how the gospel works. You can think through it. If you started to drive through the McDonald's drive through backwards, everyone's gonna freak out on you, right? They're gonna be screaming at you. But what happens when you go through the McDonald's, uh, uh, McDonald's drive through backwards is this, you get your food first. And then as a response to all that you've been given, this is what you give. Think about it through maybe five-star dining. You have this whole experience, someone waiting on you, and, and this entire night, and then maybe you go to check out, and someone even says, I footed the bill too. You go, whoa, who paid for all this? Who did all this? You recognize that the gospel 
is really hard because here it is. We are prideful people that want to attach something that we can do for the basis of God's approval, love, and acceptance. So that's why it's narrow. Do you know what Jesus is doing at the end of the sermon? He's taking us back to the beginning of the sermon. If you go back to the beginning of the sermon, look at this. The first words, Jesus gets up on the mountain. He opens his mouth. Pay attention to what he says. Verse two, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are those who are monetarily poor. Blessed are the people that are spiritually bankrupt. They don't believe that they have a decent credit score. Jesus comes along and boosts their credit score up. They recognize they have none. They're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to bring to the table. Jesus applies his perfect credit score through faith. That's the gospel. That's the narrow way. And it's not popular because we don't get to take credit for anything. Christ gets all praise and all glory, and we want something. But that's the difference between even someone who's posing Christianity and someone who's possessing it, is are we attaching anything Are we trying to take anything to that metal detector? Are we trying to take anything and say, here's what I've got? That's the narrow way. That's how Jesus is ending this sermon, but that's also how he started it. What we also see is we can start to recognize who possessors are by their profession, your profession of faith. That's why when you go through membership here, one of the first things we ask you is to share your testimony. We want to hear you define the gospel. So we want to hear you articulate the gospel. The gospel is the very thing that saves us, that transforms us, that we live by, that speaks to everything in life. We want to know that Christians understand what it is. What we recognize, though, is there's many people in this world and there's many false teachers, there always has been, that want to proclaim a false message and a false gospel. There's always been false prophets. That's why Jesus says this in verse 15. Look at what he says. He says, "'Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing,' but inwardly are ravenous wolves. My friend from Reno used to love to say that he was a wolf. He's an atheist. He's like, I'm a wolf. I'm like, you're a horrible wolf. Like wolves don't go around going, I'm a wolf. You know, it's like, then everyone knows you're a wolf. What is being described here is someone who is actually a shepherd who's taking on shepherd-like clothing, appearing to be someone with sheep, but is actually going to destroy them through the teaching that they present and provide. Like, this is a dangerous thing. This isn't people that are openly apostate. This isn't people that are just openly out there. This is people that have a slight hint of truth to their teaching, but truly the message they're presenting is false. It's lies. This has always happened. This happened in the Old Testament, which is why God gives us warning in Deuteronomy that says this. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So in the Old Testament, prophets functioned in in two primary ways. They were foretellers. They could see Uh, into the future is God gave them the ability to do that and then proclaim what was going to happen. But if they said something that was going to happen and didn't, God says, don't believe them. But also they were foretellers. They spoke on behalf of God. And that's, that was their role and that was their function. But there were many false prophets. We see this in Jeremiah 14, 14 as well. We have a verse for that. It says this, it says, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to, or, or speak to them. 
They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. There's always been false prophets. And now there's false teachers. We believe as Christians that God has given us his word. That is our final authority. That there is no longer this function and role inside of the local church as a prophet. I would say if you're at any church that someone's professing that to run, because the, the word of God is closed, it's final. I believe that there's a gift of prophecy, which means preaching and teaching God's word in a timely fashion, but that's different. I believe that what we see here and what Paul or what Jesus is unpacking here is these are these are teachers, people that are preaching, and what they're doing is preaching a really deceptive, false gospel. This is scary. And the reason it's scary is because these are the people that so many other people are following. And as they follow them, the very path they're following them on is the path of destruction. It's the path right over the cliff. It's, it, it, it is the path to damnation. Look, look at what Jesus says in 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Hopefully we're like, man, is he going to unpack what their fruits are so we can see it? But let's keep reading on. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Look, he's, he's using an, uh, just agrarian language inside of this culture because they would have understood that you can't do this. He says in 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. He says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Which can lead us to say, it, it's pretty clear that Jesus is saying, look, you can't get certain things from certain bushes unless it's this type of bush or certain trees unless it's this type of tree. But what he's also saying is this, we don't need to like humbly set this kind of teaching and, 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 and false te teaching aside. This kind of teaching needs to be destroyed. In fact, it's going to lead to destruction. Watch out for it. Look at the language here. It, it, it's not, uh, maybe keep a close eye. It's beware, like beware of false prophets. There are many, many false gospels that the world has attached themselves to. Let me give a few of them. False gospels. There's the prosperity gospel. Let me say this before I move forward. What I'm going to do, I don't make a habit of doing. What I'm going to do, I think rarely gets done from our pulpit, but I do believe there's a time and a place for it. We're going to look at false teachers. And the reason why, and, and even expose what false teaching is, which can come with exposing people, is because it's the shepherd's job to not just warn, but also specifically warn people of certain types of people. I get this from the Apostle Paul. I can show you in his letters to Timothy, first and second, there are multiple times where he calls people out by name. So maybe you think it's tacky, but, but the apostle himself says, watch out for Demas. Like he calls people by name because he's like, yes, watch out for false gospels, watch out for false proclamations, but also watch out for these people. And as a dad of three kiddos and two little girls, I'm going to tell my daughters what kind of guys are good guys, what kind of guys display godly character, but I'm also going to name some boys by names. I'm going to be like, watch out for him. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Prosperity gospel. Anyone on TBN, I would say, don't listen to. Let me, let me make that summary easy. I believe it is a prosperity network driven by money, driven by fame that preaches a message. This is why it's harmful. Not harmful. This is why it's damning. This is the message that is being sent into other countries, specifically Africa, Places of, of low poverty, what's being sent over there is this, is that Jesus comes into your life so he can make you a healthy, wealthy, and successful person. And if you're not healthy, wealthy, or successful, it's probably because you're doing something wrong. What do you do with the Apostle Paul? 
What do you do with all the apostles? What do you do with the early Christians who were faithful to Jesus Christ and suffered greatly for his name? Were they doing something wrong? Did they not have enough faith? That message is harmful to people. That's the message that gets preached by many today. If you want a full list, I appreciate the rapper Shylin. He has a song called False Teachers. Go listen to it because he rattles them all by name. I think it took a lot of courage on his part for him to do that. But he goes through and lists them. This is why when people mention names, we're not trying to be tacky. When we say, I wouldn't encourage you to listen to Joel Osteen, here's the reason why. Because the message he preaches can actually lead to more damage in your life. Not good. It can leave people confused to go, I don't get it, God. I've been trying my hardest. How did I end up here? How does my family have cancer? How do I have cancer? How how, how did we get here? We're being faithful to you. You should be blessing us. God can simply respond, my blessing has come once and for all through the person and work of my son, Jesus Christ. The next gospel that's oftentimes preached is the it's all good gospel or homeboy Jesus gospel. In other words, this is an antinomian gospel, meaning anti-law, which means this, it doesn't matter how I live. I got the grace of God. I understand the grace of God or whatever it is, all, all, all that. I'll, I'll leave all the theological stuff to you guys. I can just live however I want because the grace of God. I'll make decisions I want. I'll live in rebellion to how God specifically lines out for me to live in his word. All because I'll just say, the grace of God, it's good. If you understand how costly the payment was for you, what Christ endured, what God did, to reconcile us to himself by giving the most costly gift. I've said this before, I will give a lot of things to you. I would never give up one of my children. You recognize that? I don't think we go, I'll just live however I want. It's all good gospel. Social gospel. What's the social gospel? Here it is, all over Eugene, Oregon. All over Eugene, Oregon. The social gospel is this. You aren't saved unless you are doing enough for this certain group of people. You aren't doing enough unless you're speaking enough about this certain group of people. You aren't doing enough. Sadly, I, this, is, this is what bums me out sometimes about people so passionate about the social gospel. I see little action, a lot of talk. Little action, a lot of talk. But what they're saying is that you have to do these things in order to be a Christian. Then there's the self-help gospel. In, in other words, I'm a pretty good person. I got a hold of Jesus as a means to help me become a great person. Jesus helps, I'm unique, Jesus makes me more unique, I'm special, Jesus makes me more special. Those types of things. It's more popular than what you would think. If you don't believe me, go to your local bookstore and find out which section is packed jam with books. Self-help. Then there's the moral gospel. I'm accepted by God because of my prayer life, devotional life, how well I live. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those that do. I don't cuss. I ventured out once and watched a PG-13 movie. I have He is Greater Than I on my car. I listen to K-Love, and I have a nice magnet on my sticker, and I wear a WWJD stick bracelet. I'm the real deal. It's a moral gospel. Again, attaching your efforts, your works, anything you do. Listen, if you believe for a moment that God's love is tethered or connected to anything you do in this lifetime of yours, that is not the gospel. In fact, in, in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit determined they were going to save you based upon their faithfulness, their decision, their own volition, their own will to save you, not according to anything you do. God doesn't love you. What's today's date? The 10th. 
God doesn't love you based upon any, like your good devotional life on 7-9. God doesn't love you based upon your, 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 your bad thing that you did on 7-7. God's love is not connected to your actions. It's not connected to your obedience. It's not connected to anything you do in this lifetime. His action, or I'm sorry, his love is solely, completely, 100% attached to the actions, obedience, and life of Jesus Christ that was lived out for you 2,000 years ago. That's it. Then there's the American gospel. This is the American gospel, that at the end of the day, your politics are what you bow the knee to more than Jesus, your Savior. You care more about who's sitting on the thrones here on this earth than who resides on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. You, we know this about you because your Facebook has a lot to say about every other issue, little to say about Jesus and the gospel. It's the American gospel. And, and here's the thing. We could keep doing this. But the point is, there are these false teachers and false prophets who are producing false possessors, posers, because they're preaching a false gospel. This is why it is so important that every moment of every day in our lives, we guard the gospel. When we're in the pulpit, we guard the gospel. This is also why it's important. We have this verse in Romans, that Christians live, here's one piece of application, that we live a life outward. In other words, a life missionally a life not focused on everything I'm getting or not getting, but a life directed toward people that are out in the world that are being delivered a false gospel who have a false hope. Romans 16, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Why is it not enough for Christians just to sit in the pews on a Sunday morning? Why are we called to go out and live missionally? Because there are our world, our world is filled with people believing a false gospel. Next verse. So again, true possessors, true possessors have a true profession. Look here at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. At first glance, it might seem like these people have a true profession of faith. They're saying, Lord, Lord, which means master, master. But actually, if you look at what's happening here, it, it, it can be subtle at first, but once you see it, it's, it, it's mind-blowing. It's, whoa, that's what's happening. Look, on that day, in other words, sitting before Christ himself, there were people that said, Lord, Lord, and notice where their trust and faith was. There's people that should have heard this 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, and people that need to hear it right now. Because it, again, this is, not, this is not Jesus talking about, hey, here's like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witness or people that are out there like preaching a really apostate. He's like, these are the people that are literally sitting in the pews next to you. We know this because he goes on to talk about the rock and the sand. It's the same storm. These people are, are, these people are among us. First John says that. He says, there were those that, that appeared to be among us, but they weren't of us. This is why Jesus rejects them. They said this, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did. We did this. We did this. We did this. In other words, their trust and faith was in all the good things they did for the Lord Jesus Christ. You stand before the king in heaven, 
And the only thing that you can lay claim to if you want security is I have no business entering into your family other than by your blood and what you've provided. That's it. The audacity to stand before Christ himself and lay out all the things you've done is something that exists inside of the hearts of people that are sitting in this room right now. It's a dangerous thing. There are literally people in Christianity today that are among us that, that, that are believing that there's something that they're doing that is saving them themselves. And if you're hearing this and, and you're still like, well, this, this would be good for so-and-so to hear. This would be good. It's good for you to hear. Like Jesus is talking to the religious of the day. Jesus is talking to all of us to like pay attention and listen. In fact, I would say I don't think there's a scarier verse in the Bible than for people to appear to have some sort of intimate relationship with Jesus and then Jesus in return turn around to them and say, depart from me, I, I don't know you. I don't know you. Again, this is not the Thomas Jeffersons, our third president of the U.S. that went through and cut out his Bible, only cutting or, or just leaving the parts that he thought should actually be in there. These are the people that appear godly. Paul, Paul, Paul tells us, the apostle Paul tells us, he's like, he's like beware because there are those that have the appearance of godliness. If we can go back to that Romans 16 passage that we had up in just a minute ago, that passage also tells us, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He goes to false teachers who are false possessors and posers. We can look at Christians as well, based upon a profession that trusts more in our efforts and our works than in Jesus Christ and his. And Jesus says to that, depart from me, I never knew you. This is why, Christians, please listen. The most dangerous place that you can live is outside of God's word and his authority. Also, outside of a community collectively that is submitted to God's word as their authority. Because you can fly through Christianity, appear, uh, uh, coming to church on Sunday, and not be known. Let me tell you a story, not to dishonor my father at all, but just a story of how I grew up and why there was so much mistrust towards leaders and towards the church. I, I could tell a lot of stories like this, but I remember one day we were headed to church. Just my dad, my mom oftentimes didn't go. Mixed bag, Catholic mom. We went to Methodist Baptist. We didn't know what we were. I remember one day driving to church sitting in the backseat of my dad's truck. My sister and I said something that ticked him off. And my dad re reached back, grabbed a handful of my hair, and repeatedly slammed my head off the glass in the back over and over and over again. We pulled in the church parking lot, and this is what my dad said to me. I won't forget it. He said, we're going to sit here until you get your act together, and then we'll go inside. So in other words, I needed to stop crying. I needed to pull together so we could go inside. And, 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 and this is what we would do. We would walk up to the door, to the greeters, to the deacons, everyone else, and put on the friendliest church smile you've ever seen and walk in and pretend. And here's the problem. My dad was big, bold, and intimidating. But what he did is he existed outside of community from ever being known by people. So he had a great appearance, but it lived a whole other lifestyle. That's dangerous. When we stand up here and talk about community and getting into a gospel community, it's not so we can give you another religious check mark that you can attach your works to. It's because there is 
and has always been a call to live amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ where we are known. It's a dangerous place to live. I would never encourage you to live that way. There's your second piece of application. What we're also given here, which is really scary in this passage, is this. We are given people who seem to be, and, and I'll give us a few categories here, nominal Christians. Nominal Christianity doesn't just exist in the South where you just appear on church on Sundays and live however you want the rest of the week. It is here in the Pacific Northwest. And, and what I mean by nominal Christians is, is simply this, is you might know some facts about Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church a little bit, but in all reality, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, you don't want much to do with Jesus Christ. How, and how, how could we tell that? If you were honest enough to pull out your phone, you'd be like, well, it's, it, I don't have time. It's not that you don't have time. It's that if you're being honest, Jesus is not a priority because you could compare your social media to maybe the time that you spend in the Word or spend in prayer. And I'm not trying to shame or guilt anyone. Hopefully at this point I've unpacked, we're not saving ourselves. What I am saying is to have an honest assessment. Is Jesus a priority for you or is he just some decision you made a long time ago that you're very removed from? Because this is where we're moving into what it is to be a true practitioner. It's not enough. This is a scary thing again. This is for people in seminary. This is for, I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Andrew Kuyper. He was once the prime minister of the Netherlands. A theologian, brilliant man. Before all that, he was a pastor. Preaching in a pulpit every Sunday until one elderly lady came to him and said, I don't actually think you know the gospel. That day he put his trust and faith in Jesus Christ. This is who this relates to. His life was changed. You guys might even know one of his quotes. There's not a square inch of all creation where Christ does not declare mine. That's from Andrew Kuyper. But he didn't know Jesus for so long. This is why we have to have an honest heart assessment here for the nominal Christian to go, do I actually care to know about the person that has saved and rescued me? Do I have any desire to grow in intimacy with them? Uh, imagine this. I can know a lot of facts about Michael Jordan. I could spit them out all day. It doesn't mean I know Michael Jordan. Doesn't mean I've ever experienced him, but more importantly, it doesn't mean that Michael Jordan knows me. It wouldn't be enough for me inside of a marriage to just read facts about my wife. That would be weird. Spend time with her, getting to know her, talking to her. Is that desire there? We got to reflect on that a little bit. Imagine you're in a collision on a train track. Something happens your airbags are deployed, your car's locked, you got your kids or your friends in your backseat. There's no way you're getting out. You look up in that moment and see a train coming at you. You're helpless. You can't start your car, you can't move your car, nothing happens. A man gets out of his truck from behind you and says, brace yourself. And in a moment, he nudges your car forward. As your car is nudged forward off the train tracks, he and his truck is completely obliterated. It's a message, or that's a picture of the gospel. Christ stepping in to endure the wrath of God that we deserve. Here's the question. Would you ever care to get to know the man that saved your life? Probably. Do you want to know the man who has saved and spared your life for all eternity? Just wrestle with that, please. Wrestle with it. If not, maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're a poser and not a true possessor. How, how else do you know if you're a true practitioner or not? If you're a self-righteous Christian, in other words, do you ever confess sin? <laughs> we were camping. This is ridiculous. I'm going to look stupid, but I'm going to share it. My wife and I just got in a big argument about a marshmallow and how they were being roasted, okay? Just gonna say it, I was in the wrong. But I wasn't willing to admit it. We're having a powwow about this thing for like 30 minutes. 
I wasn't willing to admit it. Why? Because me saying sorry, me saying I'm wrong, admits something. Do you know what it admits? That I'm not perfect and I can't be my own savior and I probably need the righteousness of someone else. Every time we get a chance to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, it's so hard for us. Why is that so hard for us? Because we're self-righteous to the core. And there's also the people that don't want Jesus as Lord. They only want him as Savior. And I think it's very similar to nominal Christians. Jesus, I'll take your saving. I'm going to live my life how I want. The reason this is scary, James 1.22 unpacks this. We, ha- we have to be true possessors, which has a true profession of the faith, and then we're true practitioners. James says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. To just say, so it, it, it's all good. It's not. There's a way that we practice living our lives. Hey, do you have a desire to love and serve others, your church family? Are, are the statements that oftentimes come out of your mouth, well, no one's doing this for me, or I'm not getting this, or I don't want this, or anything like this. We have to wrestle with some of these things. Jesus says, John 13, 35, you will know that they're my disciples. By how? Their love for one another. Again, I'm going to call some people out. You show up at church once a month. Does that mean that your view of the church family is this group of people that I can offer my love to? Or when I show up late and rarely show up to church at all, what I'm probably viewing church as is somewhat like a concert, a place where I go and I get something from, but very little is given from me to others. Let's wrestle. If, if, if you're like this inside right now, just Maybe, maybe possibly wrestle that the Holy Spirit could be convicting you or something could be going on there and you are self-righteous too, okay? We're all together. We're a family here. We all struggle with that. We know this, though, that true possessors have a true profession that have true practice of the faith and the message they're living out and they have true perseverance. I'm going to wrap up for us. I haven't preached in a while. I feel like I had a lot to say. Okay. You will know people that are posers from possessors because there's perseverance that happens over the course of a lifetime. And I don't just mean people that are gritting through it. Persevering to the message of the gospel and not wavering from it. Persevering as practitioners of that gospel in the way that we love one another in the world. How do we know the fruit that Jesus said multiple times, you'll recognize them by the fruit? We're going to cover that the next time we close out. But it's based upon this, when trials hit, because he says the storm's coming, and you're going to know who the true possessors are and the true posers are. You're going to find out whose house is built upon Christ, the rock, or upon your own righteousness. Because when a trial comes, and they will come, your faith will be tested. Let me end with this. The God of this universe sent his son to do the everything we are completely incapable of doing. We don't attach our trust to our fruit. We don't attach our trust to anything we do. We trust this, that it's ultimately not us taking possession of Christ. It's Christ taking possession of us. We have to end looking at these two verses because the, the passage says right here, the kingdom of heaven is for those who do the will of my Father. Shouldn't we know what the will of the Father is? Jesus tells us in John 6.40. So if you're ever wondering, man, I just want to do God's will. What is God's will for me? I want to do this. Jesus makes it explicitly clear. This is the will of God. For this is the will of my Father. Couldn't be any more clear. Jesus is like laying it out for you. That everyone who looks on the Son 
and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's the will of God? Look on the Son. Not yourself, not your efforts, not your works. Look on him and believe. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the gospel, for the good news. We, we, we lay before you our self-righteousness. We lay before you our nominal Christianity. We lay before you the very things that we, as Paul says, do that we know we shouldn't do and plead for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.